Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eats joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode number 132. Hope everybody's having a great week out there. I hope your summer is off to a great start. Uh, We are already in the waning days of the year, meaning uh, daylight is getting shorter. So uh, the depression is already setting in for me, but that's okay. We still have lots of summer left. Hey, your homework assignment for this week, go see a live show before it all goes away, if it is safe for you to do so. We got a great episode for you this week. Uh, This is our last episode before our summer break in the months of July and August, uh, and we're going out with a bang. I'm going to be joined by the great Ken Coomer right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumstick. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the U.S., Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center, or heart, of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned before the break there, we're going to be joined by the great Ken Coomer here in just a second. Um, Ken Coomer uh, shouldn't need any introduction if you're into any type of Americana music. Uh, Ken spent many years with, uh, with Wilco, uh, just doing some of those great records that Wilco put out. Um, he was also in Uncle Tupelo uh, for a brief period of their existence, which uh, if you're familiar with Uncle Tupelo, you already know that they created the No Depression music uh, movement in American music. Uh, and since uh, his days in Wilco, Ken has been a producer du jour down in Nashville. He's helped a lot of bands get record deals. He's producing great music down there. And he continues to play on just about, you know, uh, tons of records down there for great, great artists. Uh, Emmylou Harris immediately comes to mind. 
Uh, but Ken is a drummer's drummer and a producer's producer. Uh, he has a great studio out uh, in East Nashville, and we were just thrilled to get him on the show to talk about all things drumming and production. And I know you're going to get a lot out of this. So please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle podcast, Ken Coomer. Ken Coomer, how are you, my friend? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to be here. I am doing as well as anybody can do in this day and time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're coming out of the, the dark cloud. And, uh, yeah, man, life is good. Life, life is usually good, too. So I feel very lucky, and um, I'm happy to be on your show today. Well, you know, this is a big treat for me because, you know, I, I came up such a fan of, of Wilco and Uncle Tupelo and and you know we'll we'll get into all that stuff, but I know that you just finished doing a record, uh, producing a record there in your studio. Uh, did all that go well? I mean, was that kind of your first record coming out of the pandemic? Uh, no, actually, it wasn't. It's uh, man, that may be my fifth record coming out of the pandemic. Wow. I've been very lucky to work through it, but you know we had some really strict protocols over here. I have a studio in East Nashville. And everyone had to either, well, you had to, you had to get tested and we wore masks. On, on the first record we did, uh, that I did during the pandemic, we all wore masks. We had big conversations. We all got tested as soon as we could. A couple guys couldn't get tested. They, they, they couldn't find a way to do it. Uh, and you know, we were, it was such an emotional record, man. There were tears. There, there, there was laughter, but you know, once we realized we're back to making music, what we're what we're here to do, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience, and I'm I'm super proud of that record, and hopefully it'll find a home, and you know, blah blah blah. But yeah, I just finished the record for a month with a band. It's the second record I've done with them. They're called Bendigo Fletcher from Kentucky. I just think they're absolutely amazing. Uh, the first record will come out in August. I think two singles are out now. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but, uh, you know, they're, they're something to behold and they're just kind, beautiful people. And, you know, everyone was tested and negative. So that's the first record though, that I did with, uh, mask off. I got you. And that was, that was amazing, man. When we first got together, we were all kind of, you know, we're still doing the elbow shake and the, all the, all the little moves that you do that you don't touch someone's hand or hug them. But then we were like, screw it, man. You know, we're all negative. We can do it. And, you know, I know everyone's going through this and people have, you know, lost family members, friends, acquaintances. And I'm very, very lucky to say, you know, that's only been on the peripheral for, for, for my life. I really, no one in my family got it or got sick. Well, my wife actually got it while she was skiing, but she's fine. And, Got through it. We didn't know what it was, and then we figured out what it was. But you know, just I get to make music every day. I have the greatest job in the world. That's what I tell everybody. So yeah, man, this this is definitely the the you know I tell people all the time if you're a musician or you know you you run a studio, you know you're making music. It, it is either the most frustrating thing in the world or the most joyful thing in the world or both, right? It's oh, it's both. <laughs> it's always both. You know. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I close up the studio, I turn on the alarm, and I turn around and look at the place when I leave, and I'm just like, man, I get to do this. And not to be all Hollywood and, and rah-rah and all that shit, but I, I have the greatest job in the world to me. This is all I've ever wanted to do is, A, play drums and make music, 
and to get to do it on this level and do it every day and everything's different all the time. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. I can be playing on someone's record or making a record or, you know, and just the, the whole mix of that always keeps it interesting. For me, it's the way it has to be because I'm so ridiculously ADD, I can't even, you know. Squirrel, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I do. Squirrel, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just... I think drummers are ADD as a whole, though. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if if I had to... Not that there's anything wrong with it, but if I had to, like, do, like, an assembly line job or something, I can understand how people lose their mind doing that. Just the repetitive, you know, same thing over and over. Um, you know, that's what makes music so rewarding, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. You know, you're, you're, yeah, so, and and I'll be ADD through this whole thing. So my apologies. Well, and you took the words right out of my mouth. You'll find that I go down every rabbit hole that I see in these interviews. Um, just, that's great. Just because it's so interesting to me. But so, as is our tradition here on the drum shuffle, Let's start at the very beginning. Tell everybody where Ken Coomer is originally from and, and how mm-hmm. did how did you get into music and drumming to begin with? Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm a unicorn. I was born and raised <laughs> in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, my God. You and Jerry Rowe are the only two. Yeah, I think we're it. I yeah, we're- that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I, love, I love Jerry. Uh, my dad was a musician. Uh, until he got out of the business. I mean, he still plays in bluegrass bands today, and he's 85. But uh, there were guitars everywhere around the house. I even have some of the guitars that I keep in my studio, these old 30s Martins and 50s Martins and Gibsons, and, you know, just very lucky to have all that. But music was always in my house. My dad had a radio show on WKDA with a man named Pat Boone. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And they had a duo, and they they had a record deal. They had a single record deal. Uh, and the story is Colonel Tom Parker came to look at them and passed on them to go work with this kid from Memphis. You know, it's a Hollywood freaking movie. So, so uh, he and Pat had a big falling out. They blamed each other for the demise of that. And... Uh, Music was just old in my family. My, my mom doesn't really play anything. She's an artist, but uh, so she paints. So, you know, the arts were in my house for sure, but there were guitars laying everywhere. My biggest regret is not really learning at an early age how to play guitar. I mean, there are Telecasters, and I'm just like, no, I want to be a drummer. I always wanted to be a drummer. When I was in the first grade, we lived across the street from the school. Uh, I went to Haywood Elementary, and no one will know where that is, but it's in southern Nashville. I went to school there, and they sent me home because I was banging on the desk all the time, and my mother marched back over there and said, if my son wants to be a drummer, he'll be a drummer, and if he wants to bang on the desk, you know, she just had my back. So then I got a little cheap snare drum for Christmas, you know, played on that, but my dad was really about you work for what you get. Yeah. So at 14, I got a job at some shitty little restaurant <laughs> as the fry cook, you know, getting pimples, the whole thing. So I could buy my first drum set, and I bought it from Forks. Really? Gary Forks had a place, <laughs> yes, uh, called the Drum Closet, and it was a closet. It was in Berry Hill, and I went in there, and I picked out this sky blue Ludwig kit, like a five-piece kit from the, it was from the 60s. This is in the 70s. So 
just to give you my age. And uh, I picked it out, and I think it was like 250 bucks, and it was just, you know, I played all the time, and my dad at that point, uh, he was out of the music business, you know, playing for fun. He became a CPA and an accountant and had his own firm and stuff and stuff. So he would come home from the office, and I'd be out in the garage just going bananas, and, you know, he'd say, okay, that's enough. And But, you know, they, they were always so encouraging about music. They just wanted me to get a college degree, which, I, funny enough, I did. That was the deal I made with them. I'll get my sheepskin, but you know I'm going to go do this in some form or fashion <laughs> or try to or start doing it or whatever i got to do. And, you know, that was sort of it. I, I went to college, got my degree, and then went out and played in punk bands and joined this one band that was, you know, one of one of my favorite bands I ever played in called Clockhammer, and that led to other stuff and blah blah blah. But then we toured and starved. We would go out and tour for a month, and then I'd have to come home and pawn something to pay rent. You know, that's <laughs> when you really want it. The question is, how bad do you want it? I know we're not talking about drums, and this is a drum podcast, but uh, I always loved drums. That that, that that's the point, and. Didn't realize that I was a vintage head until everything I had was vintage. <laughs> well, I was about to say, you know, if Gary Forkham hears that he sold you a 60s Ludwig kit for $250, never mind right. that it was four, yeah. never mind that it was 40 years ago, he's going to come collect the other 2000 from you as soon as yeah. he hears this. So I, I I love Gary. He, you know, he started the first real drum shop in Nashville and I championed it, and when I didn't have a pot to piss in, he would let me get something to go on the road and come back and make payments on, like a <laughs> freaking symbol stand or something. You know yeah. what I mean? He would, he always got it that, you know, his love of music and love of drummers always came through, and he would help us, man, early on. So, you know, when I started to actually make some breath from playing drums, you know, that's where I went. So, yeah. unfortunately, that shop's kind of gone and moved on to other hands and I don't really, I, I like the other local shop now better, but again, I am ADD and here we are on drum shops already. So. Yeah, well, no, no, man, I, no, this is a, I, absolutely. This is a human interest podcast. As far as I'm concerned, we just focus, <laughs> we just focus on the best musicians, right? Drummers. So, oh, it's great. <laughs> but you, you know, you said something in there that, that I think our listeners may find interesting you mentioned the band Clockhammer, and yeah. I, I want to bring this up because that was kind of a, you know, hardcore post-punk band, you know? That, that's oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, Absolutely. All we did was rehearse. All we did was rehearse odd time signatures. It's kind of Frank Zappa meets a heavier, God, I don't know, it was, it was pre-Metallica, or no, it was around Metallica. It was like, it, it would get super heavy, odd time signatures, stop on a dime, and then have some jazzy elements. And, you know, nobody knew what to do with this, but I always wanted to be in the business side as well. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's my dad. But so I wound up banging on doors and shopping it around and got us a, a pub deal, and then we wound up getting a record deal, and then that was that sort of got shady Grady because the guy was shady Grady, but <laughs> it came out through BMG. So we toured with a great band like Firehose, which your listeners may or may not know. Sure. And that band sort of adopted us and we went out on the road, but you know, I always liked all aspects of the music business and you know, you have to do more. Well, no, you don't have to. I believe it's good if you do more than just be a drummer. 
You know, well, I love yeah. drums. I love drummers. I'm a huge fan of drummers. When I find someone that excites me, and not just someone that can play, you know, 10,000 licks a minute, but just someone that, you know, even if they're playing a 4-4 groove and I feel something through it, man, I'm in like 100%. Yeah. You well, know what I mean? Yeah. Drummers excite me. They always ask. Well, sure. I mean, I, I think we're all wired that way, or at least we should be if this is our chosen instrument, you know? Um, yeah. But, you know, we were talking before we started, you know, recording the interview, and, and we both agree it's not enough just to be a great player anymore. You have to be able to do something else, to bring something else to the table to make yourself more marketable uh, or, or to to work more, I guess. There's just not enough to go around in the music industry today. And, you know, I, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but at some point you made the decision to get into producing and running a studio. Um, you know, it's... And, and let's face it, you're a great drummer, but at some point you were like, yeah, I don't want to be beholden to a band or to an artist or to be a sideman. I, I have to hang out my own shingle. At, yeah, at, I, at, at what point did you make that decision? Well, the decision was kind of made for me in a way. <laughs> uh, when, when, I, when I parted from Wilco, be it however it happened, whether I was fired, whether I left, it was kind of a combination of both to be honest, because, you know, there, there is the drummer joke of, uh, hey, I got a song. It wasn't that, but, you know, the publishing issue came up because you got to face it, at, at a certain level in any band, it becomes a business. Sure. It becomes a business, and you better have your business stuff together, man, or you are going to regret, you're going to rue the day, as they say. So I always had my business shit together because of my father. Right. Being a CPA, you know, contracts, all that stuff. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, I always loved being in studios. Like the first time, like Clockhammer, we didn't have any money. So we would go in with some engineer that loved us from seeing us play at local clubs in Nashville. And he'd get us in at midnight and we'd go till 7 a.m. And then, you know, there would be the big cartage trucks coming in as we broke down at 8.30 a.m. for some country session. And, man, you had to drag me out of there. Yeah. I, you know, I loved being in the studio. I've always, always loved it. I loved playing on people's records, like I said, but I wanted to know and learn more and do more. You know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I, I No, no, I won't say that. I'm not an engineer. I'm an engineer by fault. You know, I mean, everyone has a Pro Tools rig today. As, as I go through engineers and I use different engineers and mixers and stuff, and now I'm mixing more. You know, I always started off as a producer. I found this kid playing at a coffee shop, and that's too long of a story to go into. But I uh, recorded his demos. We had a big bidding war, blah, blah, blah. You know, I got to hire, I got to hire Charlie Drayton to play on a record I produced. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was unbelievable because uh, the kid got signed to RCA out of New York. I won't say his name because the record never came out because he was a bipolar mess. But super-duper talented uh, this is in the glory days, like 2006. And so RCA literally sends me in the mail an embossed checkbook to go, go find your musicians. We love what you did. So I was going <laughs> to produce the record. And, and you know, it was, it was unbelievable. So I got, you know, I called Steve Jordan's people. Nope, he's booked. 
I called Matt Chamberlain's people. You know, I'm a drummer. I'm a fan of drummers. I'm going to call, I called Pete Thomas's people. Nope, he's booked. Oh, I called Pete because I knew Pete. So he was booked. So then, uh, yeah, the last one I called was Jordan, and he said, well, you should call Charlie Drayton. I was like, well, yeah, I should, shouldn't I? <laughs> so Charlie played drums on half. I played on half. I didn't even play on any of the damn record once Charlie Drayton showed up, but I did play on half. But Drayton just, man, I, I don't know if your listeners are fans or uh, they probably are. It's a drum podcast. But that guy swings and just delivers. And that's what I was talking about in the beginning. Give me a drummer that play a 4-4 groove and speaks to me like Drayton. Man, he communicates. Every note, every tom, every snare hit matters. And, and he is just, he is a bad ass. I remember I brought in my... I brought in my Slingerland kit for when I endorsed Slingerland with Wilco days. And, you know, they're, they're modeled after Gretsch, really, like old 50s Gretsches. They're unbelievable recording drums. Don't let anybody tell you any different. The 90s Slingerland drums are uh, Josh Touchdown, yeah, and uh, uh, Pat, Pat, who, who did all the stuff there. Unbelievable. But I remember we brought him in, we set him up. Drayton shows up. He's got on like a white puffy jacket, pulls it off, you know, Mr. Hotshot. And then he figures out that we're not full of shit. And he goes over there and he gets some sandpaper from the assistant. He said, go get me some sandpaper. So he sands all the heads. You know, I got all coated heads on. Sands all the heads. And it's like two floors and one up. And uh, then he sits down and goes, do, 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 do. Then he says, go get me some popcorn kernels. And I was like, <laughs> what, what, what? So then he takes the, the, the head off the 16 by 18, throws in some popcorn kernels, puts the heads back on does the roll across his like and we were like we were in like you know it, it was it was crazy but that was amazing you know I, I had uh and not to drop names but you know just living in nashville everybody's here i had uh oddly freed came in it's the first record he played on in nashville to my knowledge and uh, uh peter from cheryl crow's band was the main guitarist you know and i had taras play bass from lucinda's band Mainly, it's because RCA said, go put a band together. I was like, I'll put a band together. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, this is like my wet dream. So <laughs> it's really sad it didn't come out because RCA loved it, but that's another story. That'll be a short story someday. But uh, so that's how I started producing and then just sort of stayed in it. I, I partnered up with the engineer on that record. We were partners for many years he worked in la with jeff lynn from elo and i mean he was just amazing his name is charlie brocco he's no longer with us unfortunately but charlie was one of the most gifted engineers and mixers that i've ever worked with in my life and if anyone uh has worked with him they'll say the same thing but we sort of partnered up and i wound up getting in the latin world uh because an a and r person in town sent me a uh this kid did Latin music and it's not Latin. Like you think it's like rock or singer songwriter. And then I wound up, uh, his art, uh, his name is Chattis. I did two records with him and then those did really well. And then that led to going to Spain a bunch. So, you know, I mean, my life has been a freaking roller coaster. So I was going to Spain doing records off and on. And then they were getting big enough. Thank God that, uh, uh, like head of record companies would send me a list of bands to pick. And that doesn't happen in the U S you know, I mean, that doesn't happen. 
So I picked like the one that sounded like the Flaming Lips, but in Spanish, but my Spanish is horrible. <laughs> so I'd have to have a translator. So, you know, I mean, it's just this cycle whirlwind. And I wasn't even playing drums on that. I'll tell you one thing, telling on myself, I'm out there and I'm doing this band and they're unbelievable. They are like the Flaming Lips of Spain. They're called Lori Mayers. And they've gone on to be a huge band and I'm so glad I'm associated with them. But I remember they did the stuff and I was like, yeah, let's do the percussion. I'll, I'll do the percussion. Don't worry about it. You know, Mr. Hotshot, whatever, full of my shit. So I go out there and I start to do the percussion and they're like, excuse me, uh, Mr. Coomer, do you mind if we do the percussion? They schooled me. <laughs> so, so there came in everyone in the band to do percussion and they would like one would hold a shaker and a, you know, one had a big maraca and a tambourine and they didn't even have to talk about it. Nobody stepped on anybody. No one did the all skate where you start playing tambourine from the start of the song all the way through. Man, it's the Latin world. They, they, they move differently. They take siestas at three, you know, it's just like, and they are, they are music to me. It, it was beautiful. And again, I'm going to my ADD down the rabbit hole, but it taught me that, you know, our greatest asset as a drummer and producer are our ears. Yeah. Like, let's listen and not look at screens, man. Let's, let's listen. Those kids, they schooled me on that. I remember after that, they all came in. I hugged each one individually, and I said, thank you. <laughs> thank you for showing me what it really means to do that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think in some cultures, it's just in your DNA. You know, I mean... I have had great debates amongst other drummers about Levon Helm and, you know, yeah. how he played in those greasy grooves. And I said, look, it's real simple. You're either the son of a cotton sharecropper from Turkey Scratch, right. Arkansas, or you're not. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. He's, he's one of the top heroes of heroes for me and got to meet him and hang out with him and yeah, uh, uh, yeah. But I, I mean, can't you, say you just can't teach what he does. Yeah, he does what he does. Yeah, he does know? what he does, and you can't teach somebody that. It's either there or it's not. You know. No, Levon wasn't auditioning for Megadeth. You know what I mean? I mean, Levon does what Levon does, and he plays mandolin and sings and writes the best songs, man. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I know he's very respected today, but he needs to be even more put on the pedestal that he deserves. I really do. I Agreed. think Levon is uh, one of the greatest of all time. He Absolutely he is. I mean, he's certainly one of my yeah. favorites of all time. Um, what a musical human being. Yes. And it just came out of every pore in his body. It really did at all times. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, and, and we kind of skipped right over this, but the... As I would. Yeah. Well, yeah, but... I'm really curious about the Uncle Tupelo slash Wilco thing. And sure. the the thing that really interests me is, you know, Uncle Tupelo, of course, was, you know, Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy were, were the two, you know, kind of songwriting geniuses that, that put that right. band together. And, you know, when the band, when you have two personalities like that in a band, it's, you know, it's headed for the breakup sooner rather than later, I think. Um, but Jay Farrar went off and started Sunvolt. Jeff Tweedy went off and started Wilco. Um, but Uncle Tupelo is credited with really bringing, you know, 
that band started the whole No Depression movement. I mean, it was a it was an Uncle Tupelo song called No Depression, actually. But right when and I think they kind of brought the the resurgence of Americana music. I think that was kind of the catalyst to bring Americana back to the masses. When you were playing with those cats, did you have any idea what was happening as far as that scene was concerned? Or were you just the drummer of Uncle Tupelo? Uh, uh, That's funny. So how I got in Uncle Tupelo was Clockhammer had just recorded at Fort Apache. Fort Apache was uh, Paul Colder and Sean Slade. The two producers, they sort of had a factory going. They did Belly, and they did all kinds of stuff, and they did Uncle Tupelo. And literally, we were loading out from doing uh, Clockhammer's second record, uh, working with those guys, and Uncle Tupelo was loading in. (laughs) I didn't know who the hell they were. They were loading in their gear. We're loading out. We did our pleasantries, have a great time. You know, I mean... I make records now, so I know you sort of have to become family immediately, and then they leave. It's a weird psychological thing. And some, you know, you you stay in touch with, and some you don't stay in touch with as much, and all that shit. So uh, they're loading in, uh, we say our pleasantries. On our way back, unfortunately, our lead singer in Clockhammer is sort of having a nervous breakdown. Uh, Sweet, sweet man. Uh, He's much better now. But... Uh, that band is breaking up. The band that I love, Clockhammer, my baby, is breaking up. So I get back home, and apparently Mike Hydorn, the drummer for Uncle Tupelo, has announced that he's getting married and going back to work for the newspaper. Okay. So the producers thought I could play drums, I guess. So they called uh, the record company that we were on and said, hey, uh, uh, we heard Clockhammer's breaking up. I don't know how they got the win. Uh, maybe the maybe my label guy called the producer first. I'm not sure. I wasn't privy to that. But anyway, I get a call from uh, our label guy, Doug, who's a great guy, and he said, hey, man, you know, I know Clockhammer's breaking up. This is like maybe three days later, and said, uh, this band Uncle Tupelo's looking for a drummer, and you should do it. And I was like, I don't know anything about them. Heard their name. So I went to I went to Tower Records and got cassettes. That's how long ago. <laughs> got cassettes, studied all their freaking music. This will be in my book when I write about it. All my all the freaking music, and I'm a big boy at that point. I, I'm bigger than I am now. Uh, I was bigger then than I am now. I was like 240 pounds, had giant dreadlocks. You know, kind of didn't look real pleasant. So. Uh, I went and auditioned, and I was playing as loud as I did in Clockhammer in their Belleville apartment. <laughs> and I think I scared Jay Farrar to death. So, and I had a Noble and Cooley solid maple 7 by 13 <laughs> <laughs> Like a my cannon. Favorite. Oh, uh. my God. So I'm playing Hydorn. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a drummer geek, so I'm playing his psychedelic red Ludwig kit. You know, like 22, 12, 16, or 13, 16. And I bring the snare in, and my big-ass cymbals, probably half of them were cracked, because, you know, that's (laughs) that's how it is. And I played, I knew everything better than they did, because, you know, I studied for it. 
And then uh, we all went and hung out in St. Louis, which is just right across the bridge. We got drunk. We had a good time. And I was like, I'm in. Tweety's like, you're in, man. You're in. So apparently Jay thought I was, I was too much, too much to handle. <laughs> so they got another drummer. Then that didn't work out. And uh, two weeks later, they said, can you go to Europe in four days? I was like, wow. yes, I can go four days. So I had to. I didn't have a passport to rush that through. That's another story. Anyway, so that's how it sort of happened. I didn't get it at first. And then I got it. And then it was just, you know, they were, they had built up their following. Sort of like Clockhammer had, but they were, they were ahead of that, obviously. And it was great, you know. Uh, at first, it was just a three-piece. Like the first show I did, we did, well, I went to Europe. Then we came back. And the first show we did was at Tweety's wife, uh, club in Chicago called Lounge Acts, and I remember, you know, I'm talking about Uncle Tupelo, when it's a three-piece, it's me, Jeff, and Jay, and I remember right in the middle of one of the songs, uh, might have been Gun, one that has a lot of stops and starts, Uncle Tupelo song, uh, you know, the place is packed, it's like 100 degrees, because it is packed, it's not a big club, so it holds 200 people, it's packed, it's sweaty, and I remember they, they, you know, there's a stop in the song, they're both looking at me, because I'm supposed to come back in, and I'm just like the deer in the friggin' headlights, man. And I see them both are looking at me like, okay, it's okay, it's okay. So then I came back in, and everything was fine. But I remember that feeling of like, you know, be prepared for this situation or time where someone throws you in the deep water. My, that's one thing my father and my mom, too, always said is just be prepared for that situation. You know, we make our luck. I'm still a believer in that. I believe the cream flows to the top. It's all cliches. It's a world of cliches, but, you know, be ready for that opportunity because I made sure I knew those songs and could play them, and there it was. So from there, you know, Uncle Tupelo did its thing, and it's written up in a bunch of books, and then, you know, Jeff and Jay had a falling out. They grew up together, man. How does any band stay together? How does any band stay together? Someone write that book, please. Well, you have, there, to, you have to take a lot of long, extended breaks away from each other. That's how you do it. And that wasn't what we were doing right. at all. Yeah, we you were get, on the road, road, road. Yeah, you yeah. guys were road dogging it for sure. So, oh, it's road dog. And then, it, and then I remember Jay, you know, Jay says the band's over, blah, blah, blah. And Jeff comes to all of us individually like, you want to keep playing? Because I want to keep playing. I was like, I want to keep playing. This is what I do. I, you know, I got to eat. I want to keep playing. And I like this. So we do Wilco and, you know, blah, blah. We go record quickly the first record. And I had some good moments. But, you know, I think you can tell we're scared to death on that record a little bit, too. Because, uh, you know, Tupelo was being set up to sort of, you know, and the Anodyne record with all the great reviews it got and everything, that was that that was going to be something. Don't but it wasn't. Yeah, it turned into something else, didn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I guess what I'm curious about, and, you know, I, I don't know that this has ever been covered. If it has, you've probably talked about this a million times, but I'm sure. such a fan of both bands that spun out of Uncle Tupelo you know, both Wilco and Sunvolt, two of my favorite bands right. of all time. Well, Jay goes off and starts Sunvolt with Mark Hydorn, who you replaced in Uncle Tupelo, essentially. Right, right. And you go off and start Wilco with Jeff Tweedy. I, I, what I'm curious about, did you have a choice between the two? Uh, Jay, Jay, didn't, Jay wanted all new blood, but then 
the contradiction that Jay, Jay is a walking contradiction. I love Jay. The great thing I love about Jay is Jay is always Jay. Yes. Jay won't surprise you. Jay is always Jay. Yes. Interviews, everything. Jay is Jay. I've always liked Jay. I will say it forever. Uh, no, there was no choice because Jay would sort of kept everything to himself like he does. Jay's a quiet guy unless you get to know him. Then he's really funny and, you know. But no, not really because Jeff came in and, you know, Jeff would be more insecure, especially at that point, and came in and said, you guys want to keep playing? I want to keep playing, you know. And at that point, Uncle Tupelo was a five-piece fan because Jeff wanted to do more singing and not playing bass instead of singing and playing bass. So we got John Stewart, who's still in Wilco today, sweetheart of a guy. And uh, Max Johnson was in there at first uh, playing Dobro and Pedalstone. They met him on the Michelle uh, shock tour because Michelle's his, uh, Max's cousin. And uh, the band was on that with Levon for a minute. And then they left the tour because Michelle, yeah, anyway, not talk poorly about people, but, uh, but yeah, so it all sort of blossomed out of that. And then, then it became Wilco and I was there for a good while, you know, and then, then it was kind of time to go and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I understand that. And, you know, you, you mentioned publishing and, and, you know, I don't want to get too yeah. far inside baseball here, but I, I, I think it's good for some of our listeners who, who maybe haven't signed a record deal or, or, you know, don't understand how those things work. But right. for, for the most part, if you're in a band, um, you know, and you're not writing the songs or getting writing credits, you're going right. to make considerably less money than the guys and girls who write the songs and get those publishing royalties and guarantee. Yes. And that is always a, a sticky wicket for bands, you know, and typically speaking, you know, I'm going to generalize here, but it's going to be your singer and your guitarist that are getting all the publishing royalties and they make three, four, five times what the drummer makes if he hasn't written a bunch of songs. And absolutely. And it's weird because I'm guessing Jeff Tweedy never told you exactly what to play on the records. You're in there writing your drum parts, but it's really sure. it's really up to those folks to say, well, we're going to give Ken 10% of this song or 20% or how much credit do you get for writing and publishing? And it sounds like that might have been a sticky point for you because let's face it, if you say Wilco and put a gun to a thousand people's heads, 998 of them are going to go Jeff Tweedy's band, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, he, and, and they should, because Jeff wrote the lion's share of the songs. You know, I tell every young band I work with when they're trying to figure this stuff out, because part of also having to have a business mind is, you know, I shop bands around that I work with. Sometimes I get them record deals. Sometimes it didn't work out. But I know a lot of these people from just doing this for 25 years or whatever. So, uh, oh, where was I going with that? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So I tell young bands all the time, I'm like, name three bands that have been together longer than 20 years. Three bands, okay? U2, Los Lobos, and it used to be R.E.M. And do you know why? Because <laughs> they split all the publishing. That's it! That's it! You know, no, Larry Clayton's not rushing back to the studio because Bono's working 
on a song at 2 a.m. with The Edge, he knows he gets his cut. You know what I mean? And that's a different situation because they grew up in art school and grew up, you know, playing together, learning to be musicians together. But I'm, I'm a firm believer that I'm not saying everyone needs to be set up that way either. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying if that situation warrants that, you know, then, then it should, without a doubt. You know, I'm, I'm working with, I can't say the band's name, another band where the, the singer came to me and said, you know, we're about to get a record deal from your work. Thank you very much, blah, blah, blah. But what do I do? Because I want it to be fair because we're going to be out in the van slugging it, you know, out, trying to make it, blah, blah, blah. I don't want anybody to resent me. And I told him some possible scenarios. You give them a percentage. It's the percentage. You don't have to give up all your publishing. You don't have to give up an equal split. But everyone wants to know that they participated because if they're out there doing the sweat of equity to build the band, they deserve something for that. Yes. And you know what, Ken? You, I get you, on a soapbox on that topic because I have to talk about it at least once a week. Sure. And I think it's important. I'm not an expert on publishing. I just know what I know. But, you know, it's like a brotherhood when you're in a band. It's like a, you know, blood brother. So, you know, you got you to gotta take care of people. I really think that's important. I, and from your lips to God's ears, that's exactly the way it should work. But what happens, you know, and I, I you know, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but what happens sure. is a band has some success with their first record or second record right. or whatever. And all of a sudden it is no longer the, the sum of the parts you get, right. you get one guy going, well, hell, I wrote most of this new record. Why am I paying that drummer over there? 10% of my publishing I'll just go get a different drummer. Yeah, that's, that's, that's tough. Uh, and you can't stop someone from doing that, especially in a situation where, you know, say the band grew up together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we wrote it on a napkin in a bar when we were drum. We're going to be famous. Everything's even. And then the first record hits, hits big. Life's changed. Houses are bought. Cars are bought. And then the second record the same process happens where the lead singer guitarist or whatever, maybe two guys write most of the song. Maybe it's one guy that writes most of the songs. And now you're exactly right. I'm repeating what you're saying. He's looking at it like, why not pay this rhythm section? What I pay him or just the drummer. What I pay him. Why should he get an even split when he's <laughs> just the drummer? He's not just the drummer. He made the band sound the way it sounds. It's an integral part of the machine that works. And I just think sometimes drummers don't get the respect they should get. But, of course, I'm going to say that. But I see it now from the other side of the fence. Exactly. And that's why I take such great joy in having guys like you on this podcast to say just being a great drummer is not necessarily enough to make a comfortable living in today's music industry. You know, I, yeah, it, yeah, kind of, yeah. You know, I, I'm not Charlie Drayton. I, I do a bunch of recording sessions, but I'm not Charlie right. Drayton. I ain't getting Charlie Drayton money to go do a recording right. session because I'm not right, right. Because I'm not Charlie Drayton. You know, um, with all of that being said, you know, you have to be able to do something else. And it sounds like at some point you said, you know what, I love being in the studio. To hell with it. I'm just going to go do that. I'm going to go produce music. And now, you know, you have your own studio there in East Nashville. 
uh, Cartoon Moon, right? Yeah. Okay. And let's talk about some of the records, whatever you can divulge, I guess, stuff that's already out. But just yeah, yeah. do a quick name drop, you know, five or ten records that you've produced out of your studio and, and listen to the mouths drop open. <laughs> the mouths drop open. Uh, I did, let's say, out of my place. Well, before I moved to my place, I did a couple of Will Hogue records and he had he had some big hits off that. Uh, what, what else? Uh, the Bendigo stuff is the latest stuff I'm really jazzed about. Uh, I've got a girl, so I can't mention her. I can't mention her name yet because we're okay. in negotiations. Uh, what else would I say here at my place? I'm trying to figure out what I can tell and not tell. Be honest with you. Uh, what else came out of here recently? Oh, I did Peter Oren. I'm not sure people know who Peter Oren is, although he has 10 million streams of one song. But he's a guy that uh, has something to say, and I think that's really pretty amazing, is that uh, in the world that we live in, he makes a difference. Check him out. Peter Oren, the record was called Anthropocene. We did it all here, mixed everything, and... Uh, he wound up getting a deal with Secretly Canadian, a great independent label. Uh, what's some other stuff? I don't know. It's funny. You know, when you get asked stuff like that, you're always like, oh. Well, I, I mean, did the Dead Horses record. I don't know if people know them or not. They're, yeah. They're really beautiful. And I got a kid named Cody Brooks who uh, we're doing a deal with now, a joint deal with a European label and a U.S. indie label. And I think he's absolutely phenomenal. He's sort of like Albert King trapped in a in Mississippi Fred McDowell's body. This guy is unbelievable. Like he builds his own guitars and had a lot of interest from other labels, but it turned out that everyone wanted to kind of put him in a box, which, you know, he's not that kind of guy. I wouldn't say he was homeless, but he lived in a, and this isn't homeless. This is cool. He lived in a converted, uh, Airstream trailer on a farm. And, you know, he's just, he's unique. He's pretty awesome. But, you know, one of the main things I'm excited about, I got to play with it like, uh, there's a producer in Memphis, Matt Ross Fang, who brings me in to play on the records that he produces. And, you know, part of the joy of playing on other people's stuff is I just get to be the drummer. And I really respect him as a producer. He did Margot Price and stuff. And I'm switching to that because he brought me in to play on Al Green, an Al Green track. And, you know, I mean, for me, man, I'm never going to work with Wilson Pickett because he's gone, Otis is gone. But to play on an Al Green song, and yeah. supposedly we're doing a record, but then this thing called COVID came into play. But hopefully it happens because to be in the booth playing my old Gretsch set and to look at the shadow, we, we did it at Sam Phillips' place, an old classic studio, and there's Al Green singing, man. You know, I, I don't even know what to say. He could sing the phone book and I'd be in there. Yeah. But uh, that was a real thrill. And that happened, I guess that was, yeah, that was last year. And then we were supposed to start a record. It's funny, you know, man, he didn't have a record deal. But once people got wind, he was recording a secular song. People started calling me. Hey, man, uh, what's going on? Like, presents the labels. Hey, Jim, we haven't talked in a while. No, we haven't, Mr. President of Label. He's like, hey, can you give me out? I'm like, I don't have Al Green's number. I hung out with him. I don't have his number. Uh, uh, it's so funny how that funny. world 
works, you know, and you're only as big as your last record kind of thing. It's, it's pretty funny, but, uh, you know, every day's, every day's amazing for me. I mean, not every day is amazing, but I get to do this and, you know, I, I learn every day too. And that's another thing I, I always tell drummers is like, man, learn something. I, I have taught myself how to play bass over the past couple of years. And so one of my greatest joys was I was doing Mondo Sons' record. That's a record I did out of here that, that's really starting to do well. And I think it's very, very special because it's not just some alt-country record. I really wanted to bring elements of today's sounds. I made loops. I made beats. We did some backward stuff. I have this amazing guitarist named Joe Garcia who's under the radar here, but his pedal board's as big as a house, and he knows how to use it. This guy is remarkable and you know he's off social media he's played with everyone you can mention in europe i think he wound up doing like under the table all the guitar loops on a mastodon record i mean this guy is a freakazoid so uh i did the mondo record here and where was i going with that see add isn't that amazing how it kicks in like that yeah man uh well where are we going i i know that you're a little bit modest about some of this stuff. So I'll do the name dropping for you. How about Steve? Okay, okay. How about Steve Earl, Emmy Lou Harris, uh, Fit, oh, yeah. Fits in the Tantrums? I mean, come on, dude. You're playing on all these people's stuff. I mean, uh, well, Fitz was, well, the funny thing about Fits in the Tantrums was that was a live show. I didn't record with them. So I, you know, I do miss the road. I don't think you ever get, I was on the road for, I don't know, 18 years, maybe, maybe 20. And you do miss that when you come off. Like I'll go see friends of mine, mine that are in big bands and, you know, there'll be three buses or whatever. Cause you meet people on the road, blah, blah, blah. And I'll go hang out and smell the diesel fuel. And I'll be like, Oh man, <laughs> if my wife would go for this. I'd go and she'd let me if I wanted to. But, uh, so, you know, I don't ever think you get over that and that's okay. But, I do think it's romanticized and you go out in the van and you're, I think Dave Grohl just released some documentary about living in a van, different bands. I thought that was kind of interesting, but anyway, Steve Earl, that was, I played on that stuff and getting to work with Emmy Lou and talk baseball with her. Who knew she was a baseball junkie? Like nobody's business. Hey, is it, is it true that she like keeps box scores in her notebook? Like, like she's I don't doubt that at all. I know she's sang at the World Series so she could sit in the box. I know that. In the dugout. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've heard that she will like open up her notebook in the studio and, and somebody will be like, Oh, what's that? Thinking it's like a Nashville numbers chart or something and it's like the box score from a baseball game yesterday. That has got to be true. Okay. I've, I mean, it's I've heard be that. true because she is a freak about that a freak. And, and I loved it. I mean, I was like, you know, I, I'm a baseball fan, so we could talk baseball. And I was like, Oh, okay. And no one told me she was a, like, you know, a real baseball aficionado. So. Well, you, you mentioned Al Green. You mentioned Al Green singing the phone book. I would stand in line to hear Emmy Lou Harris sing the phone book. That's how much yeah. I love that woman. So. Yeah. And that was that, you know, just a, Again, man, I'm the luckiest guy in the world to sit, but you make your luck, like my dad said. So to have headphones on and hear Emmy Lou and Steve sing something together or, or have, yeah, or Emmy Lou alone, I played on one of her things. And, you know, it's just, I, I don't know, man. I just, 
I'm, I'm a very lucky human being. Uh, I, you know, I plan to play drums till I drop dead and, uh, and I still get to play drums on records that I produce. So that's, you know, that's, that's great. I do that when I need to. And when I don't need to, I don't, it's real simple. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think it's so cool what you're doing. And, you know, like I said, man, I've been such a fan uh, of the bands for so long. And, you know, we, we mentioned, I will give, I'll give a shout out to our good friend, Josh touched and, you know, Josh is a really good friend of mine. And he told me when I started this podcast, gosh, you know, going on four years ago, he was like, you need to get Ken Coomer on the show. And, you know, it, it, it was just one of those things where, you know, I finally reached out and was like, Hey man, do you have some time? And we had to wait till you had a break in your schedule of making records. But, you know, it's just so cool to have somebody on that has done all of it. You know what I mean? Like, like your resume is had to, I mean, you have to, I didn't, man, I have a nine year old. Uh, I never wanted to be a married or have kids on the road. I saw, I saw too much of that. Yeah. So when I came off the road and I'm, you know, I wasn't like, I got to go find a wife, but when I found her, we got married and I have a kid, you know, I was just like, so what, what am I going to, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, I was already doing it, but it just, I don't know, man, it just really sort of worked out. I could go away tomorrow and I have to go back on the road. So what, you know, whatever happens will happen. But right now things seem to be cruising. Okay. (laughs) You know, we're doing okay. I'm always excited to find new bands and new talent. And, you know, and then when you get something through, Oh my God. Cause man, when you're shopping music around, even if it's the greatest thing in the world to you and you know, it's good, you're going to hear no. That's what people need to understand. I'm not a salesman. I don't think I'm a salesman, but if I, I can't, I can't, if you give me a band to shop, I did this for five minutes because I got a really big band, a deal that I didn't produce, and I won't say their name. But uh, so I was flooded with that. I'm not Walmart. I can't just sell anything I don't believe in. So when you shop something that you really believe in, man, you're going to hear no eight to 15 times at least, at least, before you hear a yes. And then that yes is that much more welcomed when you get something through, man. Like that kid I was telling you about, Cody, you know, we've had, we've had publishing deals, we've had almost record deals, and he just stays at it, plugging away, and, you know, just, you've got to want it. You, you really do, man. I'm not trying to sound like father time here, but you've got to want this business. This business can be ugly, without a doubt. I've been screwed over. Of course I've been screwed over. I'm in the record business, but, you know, if you love it, and a lot of people got out when the budget's decrease from what they once were. I mean, yeah. that's without a doubt. They got into real estate, you know, they got into this and that, which real estate in Nashville is obviously a very smart move. But, you know, you got to love this. I mean, this is, I, I had so many people when I graduated from college that turned their back on me when I joined Clockhammer and went out and starved and they went on to be sales reps and engineers and this and that. And then I'll never forget it, man. I was in North Carolina. It was Wilco. We're playing with Cheryl Crow, I think. And we're at the Norma Dome or whatever. This is her heyday. And, uh, uh, the road manager comes up to me and says, Hey, man, there's, there's this couple here. They said they went to college with you. <laughs> and, and they were some of the people who turned their back on me. They're like, they're wondering if they can come back or get into the show or whatever it was. And I was like, man. 
I don't think I can do that. You know, it was like, I'm not a dick, man, but I had to be like, you know what? I'm yeah. not putting you on my guest list when you thought like I was making the biggest mistake of my life. No. Yeah. So that didn't happen. But, uh, and you know, you meet people on the road and, and that's how I, that's how I knew all these people at record labels because I, I remember, uh, you know, when Wilco was a critic's darling band and shut me up on any of this whenever you need to. When, when we were a critic's darling band and all the A&R guys from other record labels would come to our shows because they all had expense accounts then. And they'd say, uh, they'd go to our road manager and say, Hey, uh, blah, blah, blah from Columbia Records wants to take Tweety out to dinner. And he would always be like, I'm not going out to dinner with those guys. And John Steer and I would always be like, man, I'll go out to dinner with somebody. Buy me dinner. Where was sure. sushi? Let's go, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, either, and no one gets fired in the record business on that side of the table. They either get promoted or they leave. Yeah. So, well, you know, I got to know all these people and they become vice presidents and presidents. And, but, you know, we're all just, they're all just human beings. Some of them are dicks, sure, but they're dicks in everything. So. Well, you know, you said something in there that I, that I want to revisit you know, and I want to be respectful of your time. I don't want to take too much of your time, but you said something in there that I want to go back to. You were like, you're going to hear a lot of no's. And one of the stories that I love to repeat time and time again, um, you know, the band that I played in for years and years still play. We do one show every three years or something called Funnel. Um, we, we had a guy at Atlantic that was semi-curious about us uh, by the name of Mick Cassinelli. And he was a big partner with Jason Flom at, at Atlantic. And oh, the, yeah. the story that I always remember is they had found this little band from South Carolina that they... Th- <laughs> I, I know this story. That they, I know the story real well. That they thought was okay, but they were like, yeah, if you guys go sell 20,000 copies of your cassette tape, you know, on your frat party uh you know circuit that you're doing <laughs> we'll give you a record deal it was hootie and the blowfish and that first oh, record sold how many million copies like, like I, I remember being in the atlantic office when i'm shopping an artist and they had all the diamond plaques <laughs> in there or whatever they are the little trophies and it was acdc led zeppelin and hootie and the blowfish and i was like what yeah because they're uber not they're man Wilco did one show with them in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, where we were all, <laughs> we were gone. We were gone. Open it, up, it was Jazz Odyssey night. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And uh, I, I remember the curly-headed guy, the guitarist, pulled me aside and said, man, you need to come hang out with me in South Carolina. Uh, I got a farm, you know, and he said something like, you know, I got like 3,000 acres and some ATVs and I was like, 3,000 acres? You know, it's just like the most, you know, welcome to a different world. Yeah, but but I mean, you know, I, I, nobody's going to yeah. a- accuse them that first record of being like the White Album, you know. I mean, no. I'm, not, I'm not taking no. anything away from it, but those no. were the songs no. that they were shopping to Atlantic and Atlantic was like, eh, yeah, if you guys can prove that you can sell this on your own, we'll give you a shot. And they put out that record and it sold, you know, like 18 million copies for a debut uh, record. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, you know, there's a backstory to that. They couldn't find a producer to work with them. And the guy that did got so many points that I think he retired. Mm-hmm. Who did that? Was it, 
Was uh, it, uh, I, I think it was the guy that worked with Mellencamp some. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, I'm drawing a blank with his name, Don. I'm drawing a blank. But I, I, the rumor I heard in the record industry was, you know, a lot of people turned, turned down doing the record, and then he said, yeah, but I want all these points. And you can leave that off the podcast if I get sued. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, it's just, you never know. Look, man, if I was an A&R guy at Atlantic and that came across my desk, I'd be like, hell no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have signed them. So there you go. Yeah, but I, I think that just goes to show you, like you said, you have to want it. And those guys wanted it. And here's the thing, yeah. you know, I love them or hate them, you know, whatever. This isn't a judgment on Hootie and the Blowfish. You know, I thought the record was pretty good. You know, I mean, it's huge. Um, yeah. They were the nicest guys in the world. They would like show up, you know, when they were out on the road trying to sell their 20,000 copies of the cassette. They would show up at the Atlantic offices with donuts and coffee for everybody. You know, they were the nicest guys I've ever met in a band, without a doubt. So they, you know, a funny, they were similar story is I remember when I'm out with Uncle Tupelo, beginning Wilco, and I'm seeing all these stickers everywhere, and I'm like, that's the worst band name in the fucking world. They will never make it. It was the Dave Matthews band. <laughs> I would see those on every backstage shitty dressing room. I was like, man, whoever this Dave Matthews cat is. Needs to just change the band name. <laughs> well, you know, I, you you bring it up. That's another one that people just didn't get. What is this? You know, kind of rock band with a fiddle player and a sax player. I mean, what what is this? And then the record came out, and you know, the rest, as they say, is history. But yeah, you, uh, you know, we did some festivals with them, and. It, it just wasn't, it wasn't my cup of tea. I always went to catering when they played, but, but, you know, I, I know they connect to a lot of people and, you know, I mean, that's the beauty. It's all subjective and different people like different things. You know, a lot of people are huge Dave Weckl fans and that's great. You know, I, I, I would rather hear Charlie Watts play a groove, you know, that's just me though. So, and no taking away from Weckl. Obviously he's amazing. I'm just saying, you know, you never know what people will gravitate toward. And man, the Hootie record obviously hit a nerve with everybody because that record was, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know any of those guys personally, but I know, you know, uh, uh, Jim Sonnefeld, the guy that played drums in that band, you know, yeah. I, I, I was buddies with a guy that went to high school with him in Iowa. They grew up together. And wow. you know, Sonnefeld was like a big soccer player who just happened to have a drum set in his garage. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to say that he's the greatest drummer of all time, but he did that record, did a bunch of tours. I think they might've done another record that didn't really get any attention, you know, a, a second record, yeah. but Jim Sonnefeld, I'm going to go on record right now and say that dude never has to work again in his life because of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were. I think they were signed as a band too. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Of course, they were. But you, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's never gonna have to like be a short order cook. He's never gonna have a no, gig at Home Depot. His grandchildren may. His grandchildren may not have to work. There you too. go. So, I, you know, you you just never know. And to your point, you have to want it. Um, 
So, Ken, as is our tradition here on this show, this has, you got whole, it. This whole episode has been great advice, I think. But what would you say to all the drummers out there? You know, what's what's a couple of things that we can take out into our day to day life to make it further in the business? What advice would you offer, just generally speaking? Man, early on, I had someone tell me, play on anything. If you want to be in the studio, play on anything. It's a different, different landscape now because everyone has a home studio. But, you know, if you get asked to play on a demo and like, we don't have any money, go fucking play on the, excuse my French, go play on the demo, man. Get, get yourself known out there. I mean, I would play on anything in the beginning, anything. And, you know, some of it, of course, wasn't good. But so what? I would... And, you know, you know, the biggest thing I would tell somebody, you got to be able to hang, be it on the road or in the studio. If you're an ass, you will not work for long. Yep. I'm sorry, man. I, I see it all the time. I am now in the driver's seat that if someone comes in here with attitude saying, I've got a two o'clock session I got to rush off to, you know, w- whatever it is, uh, I, I don't hire them again. I don't care how famous they are. I mean, you know, you've got to be able to be personable. you got to be a good human, man. I I try to surround myself now with good humans to make music. And so far, I've been lucky to hit that in the park home run so far. So I would say be a kind human being. Listen. And, you know, also do something for somebody without wanting anything in return. Be it music, drumming, life. Just do something for someone. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I somehow mentor a lot of young drummers. And, you know, they call and ask me for advice. And I'll go have breakfast coffee with them. There's several of them. And, you know, I see their frustration because now, man, especially in this town, there are a lot of musicians and a lot of good drummers. A lot. So I, I see the competition going through the roof because everyone moved here. It's the it town or it was last week or it is today, whatever it is. But, man, just, just make yourself known and be – the people that get hired are the ones that obviously can play, but I'll hire someone that has a personality over someone that's better than that person if I think they fit the record. Yeah. man. Hands down. Man, I've said it on this program a million times. It's, it's not about – how good you are as a player. It's about the hang, you know, the 22 hours a day that you're not playing, getting along with other people. And so true, you know, it's, it's all about that. And, you know, I think, I think you said it, be a good human being, do something good for somebody without expecting something in return and, you know, surround yourself with, with other good humans and, I have a litmus test. If I go do a session or a gig or whatever, and I feel like shit when I finish it, I don't go back and do that gig again, right? Yeah. But 99.9% of the time, even if it's like some, you know, horrible, you know, bro country gig, I feel good afterwards. You know what I'm saying? Like, that. Yeah. That's that's it. That's the drug for us. Is that well? And give it your. And see, you're hitting on something there, man. Give it your all. You know, you don't know. I mean, you don't know a who's going to be in the audience. You don't know who's listening. You don't 
No. Right. You don't. So you need to always give your all. Man, when people phone it in on a session I'm producing, they don't last long. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. I mean, this is this person's art that you're playing on. Please treat it as such, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man, it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you just couldn't give better advice than that. You know, I mean, I've played gigs where, you know, it was, you know, brown eyed girl and brick house, you know, the wedding reception kind of gig, sure. you know, but the bass player afterwards, like, hey, man, you got a good pocket. You know, I'm I'm doing a record. You want to come play on it? I mean, th- that's that's how you get those gigs, man, is play exactly brick. how you get those gigs. Play yeah. brick house like your life depends on it for the seven millionth time. <laughs> that's right that's right i'm sorry man those are great drum fills someone actually had those master tapes in a studio i was working at in la put them up and we listened to brick house all the way to the end and it goes on much longer than you think it does it's finally there was the drummer's what was his name orange his last name was orange yeah i think Darryl so Rogers. anyway he puts the sticks down on the floor tom and says that's long enough oh and I was like, what? nice yeah that's fantastic. Well, I, and you those know, Tom's had more tape on them. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I love hearing those master tape stuff. Look, man, I'll leave the studio at night and I'll get on YouTube and watch yes. Fragile recording in <laughs> London. You know, I mean, this is, this is, I have other interests. I'm not that one sided, but this is a drug, man. This is, this is a drug. Yeah, so. man. It's, it's definitely a sickness. And you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not much of a, of an engineer, but I had to buy some gear to be able to do this podcast from my house, you know, and I, exactly. I, I started buying some stuff, a channel strip and, you know, different mics and an interface. And man, before you know it, you're like, you're full blown in for like three or four grand, you know? Oh and, yeah. The, the money, the money train on this game is, yeah. But you know, and then you hear something like King Tubby that made all those great records in, in Jamaica, the reggae records. And he had a Mackie board, and all he had was the Roland Tape Echo, the, the what was it, 201 or whatever model it was. And that's, that was his sound. And he had an SM57 or 58. That was it. And they made amazing records because, you know, the gear really doesn't matter in the end. It really doesn't. No. I mean, I, look, it doesn't. The, the guy that I do a lot of my recording with, you know, he, he was the bass player in Funnel and, and, you know, still is. But my best friend, Phil Weisenberger, um, you know, he would A, B mics for me and I would be like, sure, I can tell the difference. Nobody else on earth will, you no, know, no, and it's like yeah. the, the $700 mic, it's not quite as good as the $3,000 mic, but nobody else on earth is going to know the difference. You Man, know, if a song doesn't translate from, from the front row to the back row, be it a 50 seater club or 5,000 people, it doesn't make a fuck sense what mic it is. It doesn't, man. I finally, I ran down the gear hole for a while. I was excited. I was in a studio and I sold drum kits to buy stuff. You know, I used to have a drum collection. I used to have 35, 38 kits. Oh my God. And I was a single man and I had a warehouse. You know, I have eight kits now. That should tell you a lot. But, uh, you know, I kept the eight that I love and you know, you buy gear with that. And it, yeah. So, I mean, again, man, I can't say it enough. And I, I will always repeat myself. I just love what I do. So hopefully that won't change. If it does, I'll get out. But 
until I until I don't, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. Well, man, you're you're working at such a high level. I just can't thank you enough for taking time to do this. Um, you know, you're you're playing. Thanks, your playing is superb. The production is superb. We've got to do this again. We we got to do a part two, and you know maybe yeah, I'd love to. maybe dig into some of the records and 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 you know kind of go through them like that. But man, this was I just feel bad because I know I left somebody out that's recording. <laughs> oh, I, of course you have. I mean, there's just been With, so many. A doubt, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't even think of. Them. But uh, no, that's very very kind. This has been. I've never done a drum podcast at all. I've done other kind of podcasts, but never this. So this is uh, this has been great, man. You 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 made it very very easy, and I'm happy to be here, and I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, cool, man. Well, we're gonna send some folks your way. It's KenCoomerMusic.com is the website. There's a great bio. There's a great discography out there. Uh, there's even a gear list of the studio and just out of curiosity, Ken is, you know, are you always taking artists into your studio? So if I've got somebody out there listening and they want to book some time, how hard is that going to be? Yeah, man. Well, you know, I don't, I don't treat it as a commercial studio. If I think someone has, uh, and you know, it's always my opinion, If I think someone has what it, what it takes to get through and, uh, you know, and if I really dig their music, first and foremost, if I dig what they're doing, you know, if, if someone sends me something, if they don't have any money, man, I, like that one I told you, Peter Oren, he didn't really have any money, but we made a record and then he borrowed some from his parents, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, man, if it, if I connect to it, I'll, I'm, I'm definitely interested without a doubt. Cool. And, and I'm assuming the website's the best way to reach out to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, kids, you heard it here. Heard it here first. KenCoomerMusic.com. Ken, thanks so much, brother. Uh, We'll do this again soon. Yeah, man. We'll do this again soon. Uh, Have a good one, and we'll talk to you. Be safe. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode number 132 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. As always, thanks to Ken Coomer for taking time out of his schedule to come on the show and sincere thanks to each and every one of you for listening to the podcast. We simply cannot do this show without each and every one of you doing so week in and week out. Uh, As I mentioned at the very top of the show today, this is our last episode until September, taking some much needed uh, R&R time with my family uh, while my daughter is home from school Uh, We are going to try to see as much live music as we can this summer. Uh, And taking a break is good for everybody. So we'll be back in September with more great interviews every single week. As I ask you all the time, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in to the Drum Shuffle podcast. We're going to have great interviews coming up when we come back in September that you won't want to miss. I promise you that. Uh, And if you've missed any of our episodes over the past, you know, six, eight months, now is a great time to catch up. Uh, If you like the show, the biggest thing you can do to help us out is share a link with a friend. We sincerely appreciate you doing so, and it helps us to continue to grow as a small, independent podcast, bringing you what we hope is great content. Everybody, go see some live music this summer. If it is safe for you to do so in your location, 
before it all goes away. Everybody has been shut down for so long. When bands, book shows, they need all of us to come out and see them so they can continue booking those shows. So if it's safe, go see live music. We'll be back in September. I appreciate each and every one of you. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your stick never break. Cheers, everybody.